0: right go ahead and open your bibles to the gospel of mark chapter 10 we're going to be in verses 1 through 12. that's mark 10 1 through 12. we are finally back to our study of mark's gospel it's been i think six weeks uh, since we were there last Uh, you know i've learned over the years as a pastor it's good to take breaks here and there so that i can address topics or issues that i think the church needs to hear Uh, and i really enjoyed that those six weeks and i hope you guys did as well but now we're back, obviously, to our verse-by-verse study of Mark's gospel. And as usual, uh, verse-by-verse studies force us to look at texts that we would not usually choose to study. Um, and this evening is one of those texts. We're going to look at a passage about divorce. Right? And though that this is not a fun topic or a, f- a fun portion of scripture, we're not here to have fun. right? We're, here, we're, we're to delight in the worship of God, but we're not here to be entertained. Right, we're not here to have fun. We're here to worship God and hear what he's spoken in his word. So this text, while it is not fun, uh, it has been given to us by God for his glory and for our good instruction and in righteousness that we might glorify him. So we're going to look at it. But one of the big themes of Mark's gospel is that of discipleship. Right? What does it look like to follow Jesus? That's a big question that Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel answers for us. And in our text this evening, we see some of the ethical teachings of Christ concerning what it means to follow him in our marriages. And we see rather quickly, or rather we will see rather quickly, that Jesus' principles of living in his kingdom are radically different than the ethics and standards of the world. Right? Think about it this way. This is, maybe this is how we should think at all times. Uh, Through faith in Christ, we've become disciples, but not only disciples, we have become citizens of a new kingdom, right? A kingdom that has our primary allegiance, the kingdom of God, and this kingdom has better and higher ways and better and higher laws than the kingdom of the world. Now, you know, guys, uh, you know as well as I do, we live in a culture of do what you want, right? You do you I hate that phrase. You see it on Facebook all the time. You do you. I use it ironically sometimes. But it's a really terrible way to live. Do whatever you want. There's, there's a line somewhere that people just like to pretend like there's not a line for you do what you want. Can I shoot you? No. Okay, well, I guess you do you is not the best way to live. Um, right? But pe- people seriously think that their personal opinions, desires, and feelings are most important, and that their personal desires, opinions, and feelings are the final arbiter of truth and goodness. That personal fulfillment and doing whatever makes you happy comes first above all else in our culture. You do you. You do what makes you happy. Your truth is your truth, right? All that relativistic nonsense. And because of those general thoughts in our culture about life and having the right to do what seems right in your own eyes, divorce is an absolute epidemic in our day. It's really the product of such relativistic thinking that you just, you do whatever you want to do and you do whatever makes you happy, come what may, right? And your personal fulfillment and your personal happiness are the most important things in life. That is the breeding ground and divorce is what comes out of it amongst many other things. Now, for those of us who are younger, uh, we've never known any different, have we? Right. Many, many of us in this congregation, as I look around, almost, I wouldn't say almost all of us, but a lot of us come from broken homes right? or come from mixed families. Um, you know, divorce is actually so prevalent that I remember joking around with a group of friends. Uh, this is the old band that I used to play in with Pastor Stephen. Uh, we, we used to joke around and uh, tease Stephen about being the only one in our friend group whose parents weren't divorced. Right, you know, like back in like the 60s and 70s, like you see movies where like the kid whose parents are divorced, like everyone picks on him like he's the weirdo. We ironically flipped that around and would tease Stephen, like, oh, I'm sorry, your parents still love each other. And we would tease each other. Uh, our, but we were also, in all reality, we were really glad that uh, Steven's parents are still married. Divorce is a terrible thing, as we're going to talk about this evening. But divorce is so common that we would make jokes like that. You guys get what I'm saying? Divorce is normal to many of us. It's just part of our society. Many people even expect to get divorced at least once in their lives. I've talked to such people in the store where they come in. I ask them, hey, didn't you get married? And they say, yes, and I've already been divorced, and I'm glad I went ahead and got that first one out of the way so I can find my wife. I've heard that, and some of you probably have as well. But that's not how marriage is supposed to work, according to our Lord. His word runs contrary to our culture of permissive divorce for any and every reason. And we, as disciples of the Lord Jesus, are called to be countercultural as we strive to imitate him and fall in line with what he has said in all things, including marriage and divorce. So we're going to look at his word to learn about God's design for marriage. Now, before I begin, I've got to say this. Uh, this sermon will not be, I've got to stress this, it will not be an exhaustive treatment on the subjects of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It won't be that. Right? Mark does not record such a thing for us in these 13 verses, uh, and I'm mainly going to be sticking with, or rather 12 verses, and I'm mainly going to be sticking with Mark's text, uh, text and make points that he sought to drive home here. Right? So I'm not going to give you an exhaustive treatise on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, more than that, it would be impossible to do in one sermon. It would be a series of sermons. Uh, but I say that to say this. I'm sure that some of you guys are going to have questions maybe, that I don't answer in this sermon and I invite you to come and ask me or Pastor Steven about those questions, usually, especially about remarriage. Uh, we, we, we tend to think that we've got marriage locked down pretty good, but divorce and remarriage, we tend to have more questions on come and ask me and Pastor Steve, we'd love to help you with those questions. Uh, and it's also good to note that divorce and remarriage are those situations are often unique and complex and require a lot of thought by a plurality of elders with lots of prayer and lots of Bible study and lots of wisdom, right? So sometimes, sometimes one size fits all doesn't work. Things can get very complicated when you're talking about divorce and remarriage. Uh, So again, please, if you have questions or need to talk or you need counseling um, or or you need marriage counseling or anything like that, your pastors are here to help you. So remember that and please come speak with us uh, should should you need to talk. With that said, now if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he, Jesus, and he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our most holy God, Have mercy on us now, we pray. Help us to gladly receive your word. Help us to think deeply on what you have spoken to us in this text. By your spirit, open our hearts and minds and make the text as bright and clear to us as the noonday sun. Teach us, Lord. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. We ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so some context for us to begin, right? You'll you'll remember, or you'll pretend, that the last time we were in Mark's gospel, Jesus and his disciples were having a private conversation in Capernaum, right? And that that conversation had much to do with true greatness in the kingdom of God and some, some things that are related to that. But now in our text this evening, Jesus and his disciples leave Capernaum and they head to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, now, this is basically the territory where John the Baptist has preached, or rather used to preach and baptized people. Uh, this is Herod Antipas's territory. Remember that, because that's going to be important here in a minute. Uh, this is the same Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded. But anyway, Jesus has left the region of Galilee. He's left Capernaum, and he's making his way toward Jerusalem, headed for his cross. And as Jesus gets into the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan... Crowds gathered to him, Mark tells us in verse 1. They gathered to him like they always did. And as was his custom, he began to preach to them. In Matthew, in the parallel account in Matthew 19, Matthew says he begins to heal them as well. A quick note here, our Lord was always working, right? He wasn't lazy. He was always busy teaching, healing, preaching, right? He came to declare the gospel and to actually accomplish the work of the gospel for his people. So he's always busy. But as Jesus is teaching the crowds, the Pharisees come up to him. And remember, the Pharisees hate our Lord. They're the religious elite. They're a people who are full of their man-made rabbinical traditions. They're a people who twist Scripture according to their tradition and end up losing the true meaning of Scripture along the way. They twist it to their own sinful desires and end up destroying the text of Scripture. Right? So this is the self-righteous, legalistic, tradition-bound religious leaders of Jesus' day, and they hate him. They hate him, and they hate his message, and they're always looking for a way to get Jesus in trouble if they can. And ultimately, what their goal is, they're trying to get him killed. And so they ask Jesus a question. Verse 2, and Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, there are many reasons that people ask questions, right? Generally, people ask questions in order to gain knowledge about something, but that's not the only reason you can ask a question. Some of you who have argued with people know what i'm talking about right you know how you can try to catch someone with a question um and here mark tells us that the pharisees are doing that right the pharisees asked jesus their question mark says in order to test him that is they ask him a question in order to try and get him into trouble somehow right that's their goal here they're trying to set a trap for jesus they do this sometimes jesus uniformly makes them look foolish when they do this Right? But they think that they've thought up a question that's going to get Jesus in trouble with someone or some group, no matter how he responds. Right? So that's what they think that they've done. So the Pharisees asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 19 verse 3 gives us a little more information that's very helpful to us. In Matthew 19 3 we read, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? For any cause. This is the sense of the question that Mark records here. And how do I know that? Well, historically speaking, everyone in the first century agreed that you could divorce your spouse for adultery. Especially the Jews, who under the old covenant, stoned adulterers to death. Now, the Romans had taken their right to execute people away, so it had become pretty commonplace in Jewish communities that, of course, if you could have your wife stoned to death for committing adultery, of course, you can divorce her. She has broken covenant with you, right? Though the Romans wouldn't allow them to stone adulterers to death because the Romans kind of ran the thing on capital punishment. Um, But again, everyone was in agreement that you could divorce your spouse for adultery. So Mark doesn't seem to care to record that. But the Pharisees are asking if you can divorce your wife for literally any reason. Now, maybe you're asking, um, as I did, how is this a trap, right? How is this a trap? This seems like a pretty straightforward question. How are they testing Jesus here? Well, I think that there's a couple of ways that they could have intended Jesus to get into trouble, right? And I'll let you choose. I think it's probably a mix of both. Uh, but the first way that this could be a trap is you've got to remember where they're at. They're in Herod's territory, Herod Antipas, the same Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded. And the last time someone went around speaking publicly about divorce and marriage it was John denouncing King Herod's incestuous marriage to his brother's ex wife, who was also his great niece. Remember that, Mark 6? A disgusting event. And John's denouncing of Herod and Herodias' marriage got John beheaded. So maybe the Pharisees, knowing that Jesus has a very strict view on marriage and divorce, right? Jesus has already expounded on his views of marriage. Uh, in Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32 of the Sermon on the Mount. So the Pharisees, knowing that Jesus has a strict view on marriage and divorce, maybe they hope that Jesus will end up saying something that makes Herod angry and will get Jesus executed the same as his cousin John. So that could be one of the ways they're trying to get a trap going. Uh, second way maybe they're trying to lay a trap. Historically, at this time, in first century Judaism, uh, there were two main schools of thought on divorce. Some of you guys have heard of this before, bear with me. There were two main schools of thought here. There was the Shammai school, named after Rabbi Shammai, that taught that a man could divorce his wife only for adultery or some other lewd, sexual, very heinous kind of offense. Right? That's the Shammai school. And then there was the Hillel school, named after Rabbi Hillel, that taught that a man could divorce his wife for literally any reason. Any reason at all. Let me give you some examples provided for us in the Mishnah of why Rabbi Hillel, some reasons he said you could divorce your wife. Hillel taught that if your wife burned dinner, you could divorce her. If she salted the food too much, you could divorce her. If she wore her hair in a way you did not like, you could divorce her. If her breath was bad, you could divorce her. If she spoke so loud that your neighbors could hear her, AKA if she shouts at you, you can divorce her. Or if she spoke badly about your mother, you could divorce her. Thank you, Debra's in the back time. <laughs> if, if, if she spoke badly about your mother, you could divorce her. Another rabbi in the Hillel school, I think his name was Akuba, he went along to say, or he came along and said, you could divorce your wife simply because you found another woman who was more attractive than her. Quick note here, do we not live in the Hillel school? We live here, Right? Though most people in our country aren't Jews, they follow Rabbi Hillel, and they just don't know it. This is where we live. We live in a day of no-fault divorce, which is a completely unbiblical concept and one of the worst things that our state's ever allowed to happen. No-fault divorce. Give me a break. We live in a day where it is easier to break the marriage contract than it is to break a contract about buying a house or a car. I promise you, it is ten times easier for you to divorce your spouse than to get out of a mortgage. People believe that you can divorce for any reason or no reason, and they they do it. So, real quick, what Jesus says in this passage has an incredible amount of relevance for us today so that we might not be like the world around us. Just as much as it did then, it speaks to us today. But Shammai, again in summary, was very strict about divorce. Hillel was extremely liberal about it. And the Hillel school was by far the most popular thought in Jesus' day. The liberal view of divorce was the predominant position held by the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees, knowing that Jesus holds a strict view of marriage and divorce, again, referencing the Sermon on the Mount here, knowing that Jesus held that view, but that most people did not, they could be laying a trap because they hoped to make Jesus alienate himself from the crowds by his answer. The, they will make the crowds not like Jesus. So in summary, the Pharisees hoped that Jesus would either get into political trouble with Herod that may or may not end with his execution, or that he would get into trouble with the people who were very liberal in their views of divorce. So again, this was not a legitimate question. They, they didn't actually want to know what Jesus thought. They were trying to trap him. But let's see how our Lord responds. Verse 3. He answered them, What did Moses command you? I love this i love this this is one of the many reasons that you should love our lord he didn't care about getting into political trouble he really didn't he didn't care about popularity with the crowds and he certainly didn't care to sit around and argue what the opinions of rabbis and their traditions were oh well you know shammai said no he doesn't care to do any of that he says what did moses say he cuts right through it and he says what does the bible say about this brothers and sisters if i could say this and this is an anachronism Jesus believed in Sola Scriptura. Jesus appealed to Scripture all the time. Look all throughout the gospel accounts. When a question is posed to him, whenever a controversy erupts, Jesus always goes back to the Scriptures to settle it. He says, what does the Old Testament say? Right, that's us speaking from, again, anachronistically. What did Moses say? Or, it is written. Or, my favorite, have you not read? Right, you Pharisees who claim to know the scriptures forwards and back. Have you not read what Moses said? He always appeals to scripture. Our Lord believed that scripture alone is the supreme and only infallible rule of faith and practice. Brothers and sisters, this is an example for us. We are to be ruled by the scriptures, we are to be ruled by the scriptures, not tradition, as much as I love our reformed heritage. We are not ruled by tradition. We must check our traditions by the word. And if they're not biblical, we have to throw them out. We're not ruled by traditions. We're not ruled by the opinions of men. You're not ruled by your own opinions. We're not ruled by a Pope. We're not ruled by councils. We're not ruled by our own personal feelings, right? You ever seen people like they believe in sola feels, right? Instead of sola scriptura, it's just like whatever I feel. And we're definitely not governed by what our culture and what it says. We look to the infallible and inerrant word of God to direct us in what we believe and how we live. This is the example that our Lord Jesus gave us in his humanity, and we follow him. So we must do likewise. But Jesus asked them, what did Moses say? That is, what does the Torah say? Right, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament that Moses wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What does the law say? What does the scripture say about the issue of marriage and divorce? Verse 4, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. The Pharisees are claiming here that all you need to do to have a legitimate divorce, according to the word of God, is to write a bill of divorce, give it to your wife, and kick her out of the house. And that's okay with God. Like, you've done it. That's what Moses said to do. God's okay with it. Give her the bill. Kick her out. Have a great day. God's fine with it. And what the Pharisees are doing here is they're actually making reference to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. If you've got a Bible, turn there. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And this is where the battle raged. These verses are where the battle raged between the Shammai and Hillel schools about divorce. So let's take a look at that text and see what it says. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. That's the text. That's the text that the Pharisees are referencing here. And the Pharisees really like to key on verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24. That's That's where the two schools of thought did battle. And they focused on this line. If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Some indecency. Now, the Shammai school, the the strict school, focused on the word indecency here. And that word means something vile. In chapter 23 of Deuteronomy, it's used to refer to human excrement, right? Something indecent. It's vile. And so the Shammai school said that the grounds for divorce had to be something terrible, truly morally terrible that the wife had done. But Hillel focused on the word some, or could be translated any. He finds any indecency something. And they took it to mean if he finds anything in his wife that he thinks is vile, then he has grounds to divorce her. So again, Hillel focused on the word some. Shammai focused on the word indecency. But really, both schools of thought completely miss the point of what Moses is saying here. Moses is not approving of, nor is he commanding divorce. He's not approving of he's not commanding it and he is not telling you he's not telling us the grounds for a legitimate divorce either this is what we call case law here in the book of deuteronomy case law works like this if this happens if this case arises if this then you do this right so this is case law that's what we're seeing here and moses isn't telling us the grounds for divorce or anything like that moses is just telling of a situation that might arise And did often arise, or at least enough that God gave a law concerning it. And then he's telling what the command is if such a situation comes up. Moses isn't saying that divorce is good. And he's not commanding it. And he's not telling the grounds. He's giving case law here. So let's summarize real quick what these verses actually say. And we'll see, I think, that Moses is giving a law about what to do in a situation, but is not talking about the morality of the situation. So let's review. First, if a man divorces his wife because he finds some indecency in her. And real quick, that phrase, some indecency, that language is vague. I hate to say it, but it's vague. Moses doesn't define it. He's just saying that if a man happens to divorce his wife for something that he thinks is indecent. So in some regards, you can kind of sympathize with the Hillel school. Again, they were missing the forest for the trees here. But some indecency is a vague phrase. So again, if a man divorces his wife because he finds some indecency in her. Second, and if that man gives her a certificate of divorce and sends her out of the home. Third, and if that divorced woman remarries. Fourth, and if that woman's second husband divorces her or dies. Fifth, then... Her first husband may not remarry her. Verse 4 actually contains the only commandment here. It's the only commandment in, the entire, in, the, in all the verses. The rest of the verses are just setting a scenario that can and sadly often did happen in Israel. Right? But this passage here in Deuteronomy 24, it gives no definition of proper grounds for divorce. And it doesn't speak of the morality of the divorce mentioned. It just gives a commandment on what to do after the divorce happens. Or you could put it like this. This is maybe more simple. Moses is just recognizing that divorces happen. And then giving regulation about it. That's it. This text recognizes that divorces happen. And then God, through Moses, gives a commandment to regulate divorce and remarriage. But this text is certainly not approving divorce, and it's not telling us on what grounds a divorce is morally acceptable. Now, a quick note here. Um, I actually see in this text a few deterrents to divorce and possibly a protection for the woman being divorced, right? Contrary to what the Pharisees would have thought. First, verse 1 implies that there was a legal process that you had to go through to get a divorce. It's implied there right? A certificate had to be written, it had to be given to the wife, and she had to be sent out of the home. There's a process which would make a man have to think about what he's doing. Some cultures back then, you could divorce your spouse verbally. There was one culture I read about, and maybe it was the Assyrians, I'm not sure, but back in Old Testament times, if you told your wife three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce, like Beetlejuice, like she's not your wife anymore, but not in Israel. Moses at least implies that there was some paperwork that had to be drawn up, had to be given to her, and she had to leave the home. This would make a man have to think about what he was doing, and he couldn't just divorce his wife in a fit of anger. A second thing I see here, if the woman remarried, this would be a deterrent. If the woman remarried, and she would certainly try to find a new husband, if the woman remarried, then the first husband could never remarry her. That's what verse 4 says. The first husband can never remarry her. Knowing that would make this man think long and hard about the whole situation. If I kick her out and she finds someone else, I can never have her back. Is this really what I want to do? Again, it's a deterrent. Third, this certificate of divorce actually protected the woman in some ways. It would exonerate her from any accusation of literal adultery. Adultery carried the penalty of stoning. So once this man kicks her out of the house, if he sees that she's with someone else, he can't say, she's committing adultery against me because she could pull the bill of divorce out and say, he divorced me. And this certificate says, I'm free to remarry. So the woman was actually protected by this law and the prohibition against remarrying her first husband would keep her from being treated like a piece of property that the first man could pick up and put down over and over again as he saw fit. I think that these verses are a deterrent and a protection actually. Not saying divorce for whatever reason you want. That's not even the point of these verses. But again, I hope you can see that the Pharisees completely missed the whole point of this text. And they viewed it as a justification for getting divorced for any reason whatsoever. But that is not what these verses are teaching. In fact, the Pharisaical interpretation is a bastardization of the text. And it reveals a sinful heart that desires to contradict God's design for marriage. But let's see now how Jesus responds to such a horrible twisting of Scripture that the Pharisees were proposing. Verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart he wrote you this commandment. Jesus says that it is because of the stubbornness of sinful man that Moses had to give commandments about divorce. It's because of the fact that sinful people were determined to get divorces It's because of that that some commandments that regulated it had to be given. It wasn't because divorce is good or always permissible that the commandment was given. It was because of human sin that the regulation of divorce had to happen through the law. Brothers and sisters, sin is always in the mix when it comes to divorce. It's always in there. And quickly, that does not mean that every divorce is always sinful. There are valid grounds for divorce that we're going to get to here in a little while. But sin is always part of divorce. Always. It is because of hard-heartedness or stiff-neckedness or willful rebellion against God. That is why divorces happen. I want you to see that. This is in part what our Lord is saying here about divorce. It's always the product of sin on the part of one or both parties getting the divorce. It's always the product of sin. There is no such thing as a completely sinless divorce. There is always sin involved that leads to the divorce. I hope we see clearly from this verse that divorce was never part of God's design for marriage, it was never God's design that we would get divorced. Marriage was created by God, but divorce is wholly of man and due to human sinfulness. Marriage is of God, divorce is of man, and divorce is always the product of hard-heartedness toward God and spouse. And so Jesus goes on to explain God's purpose and design for marriage now, and he starts in Genesis. He starts before sin ever had entered into the world, and I think and we can argue about this. Whenever Jesus asked the Pharisees, what did Moses command you? I think Jesus was referring to Genesis 2 that he's about to quote. They quoted Deuteronomy, and Jesus is saying, it's not the text I had in mind, fellas. Verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. In the beginning, back in the Garden of Eden, before mankind fell into sin, God made them male and female. That is, them, the two of them. There There was one man and one woman. God did not make multiple men and multiple women. He did not make one man and multiple women. He did not make one woman and multiple men. He made one and one. And so divorce was not even remotely part of God's design. There was no one for Adam or Eve to, to marry if they left each other. There was no one else. And God joined these two together in marriage. Again, there was no one else, and it was beautiful. And God intended it to last all their lives. It was one man and one woman. And that's why Moses went on to say in verse 7, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then our Lord adds, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And this is really simple, but also really beautiful. It is because God created marriage to be a lifelong covenant of companionship and faithfulness between one man and one woman. Because of that, a man is to leave his parents and hold fast to his wife. And that phrase, hold fast, in Genesis, means to be glued, King James, to cleave to your wife. It's to be glued together. It's to be sealed and bound together. And just for a comparison here, as close as the child-parent relationship is, that relationship changes a bit at the point of marriage. The child, or rather, the two children being married are now having primary allegiance to one another because they've been bound together in a union that is wholly distinct from every other union they've ever had, any other relation that they've ever had, even as close as the parent child bond is, this new bond in marriage is closer. It's closer. It's beautiful. They're now glued together in bonds made by God, and their primary allegiance is to one another. And Jesus reminds us that the two become one flesh. Now, obviously, that could have some reference to copulation, right? Wedding night stuff. Sure, that's a picture of this one flesh relationship. But that word flesh, this blew my doors off a bit this this past week. I thought this was beautiful. This word flesh is used metaphorically in the Old Testament to speak of people. All flesh shall see. All people shall see, right? Right? The text Jesus is quoting from in Genesis 2 says that the two people become one person in marriage. That's not just some cheesy thing you hear at weddings. That's actually what the text is saying. There are no longer two people, but there is now one new person. This is beautiful. God takes us. Most of us who are lonely in life, let's let's, let's be honest, God looked at Adam in an unfallen world and saw that there was no helper fit for him and said it is not good that adam be by himself it's not good for man to be alone so he made him eve for most of us unless god calls us to celibacy for most of us it is not good for us to be alone most of us are lonely in life but then god graciously unites us inseparably to another person And where there were two, in marriage, he makes one new person who are to be together for life, never lonely again, always having their help and their companion. The two become one. They operate as a new unit now. They share life together. When one hurts, both hurt. When one rejoices, both rejoice. When one cries, both cry. When one triumphs, both triumph. When one fails, both fail. They are one. And they are one for life in a covenant of companionship. This is a beautiful gift God has given. And this we must remember. Here's the kicker to all of it. This is the work of God. This is the work of God. God makes this union, not man. God has glued the two together in marriage. God has made a new person Not the couple. The the couple had to consent, yes. The couple had to make the covenant, yes. God did the bonding. God did the gluing. And so Jesus adds in verse 9, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Let not man separate. This is the command. God has joined the two together, so do not separate the two. That's the takeaway here. And note this real quick. Jesus does not say that the two cannot be separated. Divorce, even on unbiblical grounds, does legitimately break the union. He doesn't say it's impossible to separate them. He says, don't do it. He says, don't do it. Do not separate those who have been united by God. Do not get divorced. Do not make a mockery of the work of God in marriage. And I think Jesus is speaking primarily to the spouse would desire to seek a divorce let not man separate so in other words and let me just keep it real here for a minute i know we all like to pretend on facebook that our marriages are all perfect right that's fun isn't it just a lie (laughs) it's sinful i'm obviously being sarcastic don't lie we're going to read the ten commandments in a minute But we all like to pretend that our marriages are just on a 10 all the time. But let me speak to you if that's not actually the case, as I believe it's not the case with hardly anybody. In light of what Jesus says here, if you have divorce on your mind, Jesus says to you, who are you, O man, to break apart what God has joined together? Let not man separate. Who do you think you are? If you would consider divorce, Remember that. Remember that when you think you want to get a divorce for some frivolous reason. Remember that when in the heat of the moment when you're arguing with your spouse, you can feel the words forming in your mouth, I want out. Remember, who are you, oh man, a creature to break apart the union that the creator has made. You have no right as a creation to break apart what the Lord God Almighty has put together with his own hands. But we see here in the words of our Lord that divorce is not part of God's design for marriage. And we see that divorce is something to be hated. God himself even says in the book of Malachi that he hates divorce. And so we should hate it too. Divorce is not part of the ideal. And so in nearly every single case, in nearly every case, it should not even be remotely on the table in our minds, on our minds or in our mouths lest we sin horribly against God and spit upon his sacred institution and most holy will for us. But after saying this all to the Pharisees, Jesus and his disciples retired to a house. And in the house, the disciples asked Jesus again about this subject of divorce. Verses 11 and 12. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her and if she divorces her husband and marries another she commits adultery the disciples they go back into a house and Jesus are you for real about this stuff that you just said and Jesus doubles down on his original statement to the pharisees and he drives it home with even more force i think and what we see here in these closing verses of this passage we see here the general rule for marriage it is the general rule for marriage Rather, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And here it is. If you divorce your spouse and do not reconcile with them. When I say reconcile, I mean remarry the spouse you divorced. If you do not do that and you marry someone else instead, you commit adultery against your first spouse. That is the generally applicable rule. That's the rule that we need to keep in our mind first and foremost when it comes to divorce. This is the word of God. The divorce itself is sinful, and remarriage to another person adds sin on top of sin. The second marriage is one that has begun with an act of adultery. Though I do not believe, just real quick, I do not believe it is perpetual adultery, The words of the text says that they are married. You marry another. You're actually married. But the act of the remarriage was an act of adultery, according to our Lord Jesus. This is serious stuff for us to consider. Divorce and remarriage are serious sin issues, according to Jesus. Marriage is a serious, lifelong institution created by God Almighty. And divorce and adultery are seriously heinous sins. God does not take any of those things lightly. And so we need to consider very carefully and take to heart what our Lord says here, lest we be guilty of horrible sin. So here's how you should view. You know, the thought of someone propositioning you sexually makes you shrink back and say, I will ruin my life. You say with Joseph, how can I commit this sin and sin against God? How can I do this horrible thing and sin against God? That's how you should view divorce and remarriage. How can I do this horrible thing and sin against God? We should view it with the exact same kind of disgust. I cannot do that. I will not offend my God this way. That's the same kind of intensity we need to have. Just like we would with adultery. Because Jesus says divorce and remarriage is adultery. But a quick note here. Your marriage is precious in the eyes of God. I hope you see that maybe it's not precious in your eyes right now but your marriage is precious you may consider it a light thing but God does not you may right now consider it a burden right now you may consider your spouse a curse instead of a blessing you may at times wish you were single but listen to me our God is sovereign And he sovereignly arranged your life so that you would marry your spouse. And on the day you made a covenant, he glued you together. And it is his will that you remain together. Marriage is precious. Divorce is awful. And God will hold you accountable to your marriage covenant. So please, if you're tempted with divorce, remember these things. And heed the words of our Lord here. But I want you to hear the general rule about divorce and remarriage again. If a man divorces his wife and marries another woman, he commits adultery against his first wife. And the same is true for a woman who divorces her husband. This is serious. Please take this seriously, Christian. But maybe you're asking yourself, are there any exceptions to this rule? Are there any exceptions? And the answer is yes. And maybe you're thinking, but Mark doesn't tell us of any, right? So what do you mean there are exceptions? Well, remember this real quick. You can state a general rule without without its exceptions, but the exceptions still exist, right? Just throwing that out there. An example, you tell a new driver that it is illegal to speed. Pretty solid advice. Is that always true for everybody? No. Police speed, it's okay in some circumstances, Ambulances, firefighters, if you're in an emergency and you're rushing someone to the ER, you're probably not going to get in trouble, right? There are exceptions to the rule, but nevertheless, the general rule stands. It is illegal to speed, and you're going to get in trouble. Or a second one, you tell someone it's a sin to kill people. Again, solid advice. Some of us need to hear that more than others, right? It's a sin to kill people. Remember that. But there are exceptions like self-defense, a just war. And protecting the innocent from murder or grievous bodily harm. Those are all exceptions. Do you need to state all the exceptions in order to say, "Don't kill people?" No. The exceptions are there, even if you only give the general rule. But the exceptions to Jesus' words here in Mark are found in Matthew 19 verse 9 and 1 Corinthians 7:15. In Matthew 19, we read, Jesus said, again same setting, Matthew records Jesus saying, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. It's what we call the exception clause, except for sexual immorality. There's the one exception our Lord gives in his earthly ministry. That is the only reason you're permitted, not commanded, but permitted to divorce your spouse. And that word sexual immorality covers all manner of sexual sin. If your spouse commits some kind of sexual sin or sexual act apart from their marriage to you, then you are free to seek a divorce. And should you get a divorce from your unfaithful spouse, Jesus says that you are free to remarry and the remarriage not be sinful. That's what Jesus says. That's the one exception he gives. And the other exception is given by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.15. 1 Corinthians 7.15 says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Paul here in 1 Corinthians 7 is referring to a Christian married to an unbeliever. And he says that if the unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage, then the Christian is allowed, or rather, rather the Christian is to allow them to go. And once the divorce is over, the Christian is permitted to remarry another believer. That's what Paul goes on to say in that letter. So then we see that the only two exceptions to this rule concerning divorce and remarriage, the only exceptions are, one, sexual immorality, two, desertion. That's it. That's it. There are no other biblical grounds for a believer to get a divorce. So then, I want to say very clearly that 99% of all divorces in our day are sinful. Most, Most divorces are sinful in our day. And therefore, the vast, vast majority of remarriages begin with an act of adultery. And since that's true, I want you to know, Christian, that nearly every reason you may ever have for considering divorcing your spouse is absolutely wicked and contrary to the word of God. And you ought to repent of such desires and thoughts if you ever have them or ever have had them. Again, I want you to get in your heart what Jesus said. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We have no right to burst apart the bonds that God has established in our marriages, except for the two reasons that God himself has explicitly given to us. And listen, I know some of you have questions. But what about this? Was this considered desertion? Well, What about some... I get it. Come talk to me later if you've got questions about that. I cannot address them all right now. But I want you to see... Don't, don't get caught up in Pharisaical like thinking where you want to know all the exceptions and loopholes to the rule. Jesus is laying down the general rule here. That's what Mark records for us. That's what Mark is trying to drive home. See the general rule. See that divorce is nearly always sinful. See that you ought to strive to keep your marriage together and glorify God in it. That's what you should take from this. Now, this has not been a fun text to preach, it has not. I'd much rather preach about sovereign grace. And while it maybe has been informative to some of you, hearing a sermon on divorce is not particularly uplifting, is it? Divorce is ugly. It's terrible. And most of the time, divorce is an awful sin against God and man. And so maybe you're left here asking, where is the gospel in this text? Where is the good news in this text? Well, hear me this text reveals sin in the lives of many. Has everyone here been divorced? No. But the desire to be divorced without biblical grounds is an evil desire. Even if it's just in a fit of rage, your rage was sinful and your desire to leave your spouse in that moment was sinful. This text reveals sin. Getting divorced without biblical ground is sin. Remarrying unbiblically is an act of adultery. This text reveals sin in the lives of many of us in this congregation. And we must see our sin in order to see the Savior as he is. And so as this text reveals our sin, we look up and we see Christ crucified, who died for those who are sinfully divorced, who died for our heart sins and our evil desires, who died for the adulterer, We see our sin here and are forced by the Spirit of God to look up and see Christ who is our righteousness apart from whom we have no hope because of our desires and our acts. We see our wickedness and then we look to the crucified and risen Christ who lived, died, and was raised to save sinners like us. The gospel is in this text even if it seems hidden because this text exposes our need for a Savior who will make us clean and make us a spotless and pure bride fit for God. But even more than that, the gospel is bigger than Jesus dying for our sins. It's not less than that, but it's bigger than that. The gospel includes the fact that he gives new life to his people, right? The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Here we're reminded that Jesus shows us a better way to live, a way that is better than the selfishness and sinfulness of the world and we know that we have the covenant promise of our faithful husband, Christ, that he will help us to live as his people. By faith in Christ, we are free from our sin nature that dominates us and leads to so many divorces. And by God's grace, he will give us strength to stay in our marriage, marriages, keep them strong, fix them when they're busted up, so long as we submit to him and his word. This is good news. This is good news. Divorce is never inevitable for the Christian, right? There is always a way to preserve your marriage. If both of you are believers, there is always a way to preserve your marriage through faith in Christ, repentance, and submission to his word. This is good news. We have freedom from sin. This is just one application of our freedom from sin. We have freedom from sin and grace to obey God from the heart. And all of this flows from the work of christ and his blessings that he purchased for us in his life death and resurrection the gospel indeed is in this text even if it's under the surface it's there but for application now let me speak to five groups among us and i will be brief first to the married stay married stay married drill this text into your heart sincerely what god has joined together let not man separate Remember that. Second, to the divorced. If the divorce was your fault, and usually both are to blame in some way, even if not equally. If the divorce was your fault, know that there is forgiveness for you in Christ. There is forgiveness for you, and you are not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. And if you're the innocent party, know that God counts you as free and uncondemned in this matter. So be free. And remarry if you so choose. Third, to those who have been unbiblically divorced and also unbiblically remarried, your marriage, though it started with an act of adultery, because you committed adultery the day you got married, though your marriage began in sin, it is still a real marriage. And now God calls you to honor him in this new marriage. So keep it together for his glory and look to him for help who loves you and helps you. And remember when you feel guilt for your past sins of divorce and adulterous remarriage, remember that Christ died for adulterers. And a quick aside, may God help us to never look our noses down on those who have been divorced. I'm not saying to to soft pedal what the Bible says on this, but we should never look at our brothers and sisters who have been divorced, remarried, and forgiven by Christ. We should never look down on them. We should say praise God for his magnanimity towards you to be so gracious. Fourth, to the single, see that marriage is weighty but beautiful. Don't enter into it lightly. Seek counsel before you marry and talk things over with your potential spouse. And be resolved, should God provide you with a spouse, be resolved to obey him and honor him in your marriage. And also know this, We don't like to talk about this, but let's talk about it. Should God not provide you with an earthly spouse? That happens sometimes. Know that he is your faithful husband. And he will bear you, or rather, he will help you to bear your trials and carry you. He is faithful and he will do it. Lastly, to us all, Jesus is Lord. Lord of all, including our marriages. And so we submit to him. We appeal to him and his word to form all of our beliefs and all of our practices. We are his disciples, his followers, his learners, his people. And so we lay down whatever junk advice or junk norms that we have imbibed from our culture. And we seek to be transformed and purified by his word so that we might think his thoughts and live his way jesus christ is lord so we follow him wherever he leads us and praise god he is also our savior who cleanses us from all our sin let's pray our great god and father we thank you for this weighty text that exposes us that what that does lord it does show us the beauty of marriage it does show us the beauty of your design but, Lord, I, I, would, I have to think that it exposes all of us, at least on the heart level, that we have been sinful in our marriages. If not outwardly sinful, we have been internally sinful. God, I pray that this text would direct us to our Lord Jesus, who lived and died and was raised for us. And, God, I pray that by your Spirit, you might help us to honor you in how we treat our spouses, in men, how we govern our families in women, how, we, how they submit to their husbands. God, help us to have good, healthy marriages that stay together and glorify you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.